battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator, Adam Keller. We are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, we dig deep in how politicians are making construction jobs lower paying and less safe. Alabama state employees still don't have parental leave and some good news for immigrant labor for once. All that and more on today's program. If you want to be part of the show today, we've got a phone number and the line is open. Call or text 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail or shoot us a text message throughout the week, and we might play it on the next program. We got a voicemail last week that we will be playing in overtime today. That is the second half of the program that is off the radio. Uh, And so we'll be taking a listen to that voicemail right at the top of that that, uh, part of the show. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, um, then you can find us anywhere you find anything online. We're on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, Twitch, all at The Valley Labor Report. Just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So if you want to become a sustaining member of the program, make a one-time donation, buy a shirt or a hat, then you can go to our website, tvlr.fm, and make that donation at tvlr.fm slash donate. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash Report. And if you're a member of a union, then definitely think about getting your local to sponsor the show. I mention this uh, every week, but we could not do this without our union sponsors, uh, local, regional, and international. We have a lot of help uh, from the uh, from area unions that make this that make this show possible. So we appreciate them. And uh, you can reach out to us for more details if your union is not a sponsor, but uh, you think that they should be. So uh, let's go ahead and... Oh, oh! before we jump into the first segment, I want to address um, some controversy from last week. And I forgot to mention this to you, Adam, but, um, but I had somebody approach me concerned after our program last week um, where I was... Um, making a joke about George Orwell, and I said, George Orwin's 1987. They were concerned that I did not know the name or the title of the book, and that it was not a joke, 
but I assure you that it was. And she and then <laughs> she was like, this is my fiance talking. She was like, you know, you sound like you didn't know what you were talking about. And I was like, that's the point. That was the whole point is that the people who quote George Orwell have no idea what they're talking about. And that was the point. I was emulating them in a mocking way. So I assure you, I am not under the illusion that uh, the name of the book is 1987 or that the name of the author is George Orwin. So I just wanted to put that out there. Glad you cleared that up. Yeah, wanted to make sure. She was like, I bet, I bet nobody even got that joke, Jake. It's like, I'm not so sure about that. I feel like people would have got the joke. Um, <laughs> but, hey. Just in case you didn't. Look, you know, we're an honest show here. We want to make sure that we make corrections, clear up any misunderstandings. So, you know. That's right. George yeah. Orwell, the author of 1984. Yes. Who uh, who also, just just as a factual record, not to support this or, or not support this, but just so that people know, uh, who said after the writing of those works, 1984 and Animal Farm, that he said that uh, the entirety of my work since this date, which was before he wrote those books, he said, the entirety of my work since 1936, I think it was, has been in the service of advancing democratic socialism. Um, that's not to say that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that's facts. So, you know, think about that next time you hear some weirdo quoting George Orwell, who is like bootlicking um and also i wanted to i wanted we're, we're about to go in and last week in southern labor but i wanted to ask folks how you felt about um how you felt about us doing this at the top of the show i want to make sure to keep last week in southern labor within the main show so that the radio audience gets it, because I think that there's a lot of good information in there. But I also wonder about how it, I wonder if it is perhaps a bit alienating to people who just come to the podcast, as opposed to, you know, if you're listening to us on the radio, you're maybe a bit of a captive audience, you know, you're probably, you know, not captive, you can always turn the channel, but you're more likely to just come in and out and, and stay with it. Whereas if you listen to us on the podcast, I wonder if it's maybe a bit alienating or or just like what's going on that the first 10 minutes of the show is, you know, listing like just facts as opposed to like commentary or analysis. It's just like a, you know, 10 minute long list of like statistics. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know. I want to make sure to keep it in, but I wonder, I'm wondering about changing it around. I, I put it at the top so that I make sure that we have room for it because sometimes some things happen and you don't have room for it, but I don't know. Tell me your thoughts. Should we keep doing it at the top of the show or should we move it around? Let us know. Absolutely. And and for that matter, just we always appreciate your feedback on, on any given subject with the show. So if you have any feedback, uh, we're in the process of getting a little survey together. We're going to distribute to our listeners. Uh, and, and But you don't have to wait on that. If you have any thoughts, you have any ideas about how we can make the show better, always let us know. Yep. Uh, so, all of that preamble aside, 
Last Week in Southern Labor. Last Week in Southern Labor is a segment that we do every week mostly where we tell you what happened in the labor movement in the South. We pull the information from Jonah Furman's newsletter, Who Gets the Bird? Which compiles all this information for the entire United States. So if you want to see what is going on outside of the South, then make sure you subscribe to that newsletter. It is at whogetsthebird.substack.com. With that, let's jump into new organizing for the week of January 8th to the 15th. We had six flight simulator techs at Aero Simulation in Mobile, Alabama, joining the Machinists Union. Four workers at record producer American Vinyl Company in Asheville, North Carolina, are unionizing with IBEW Local 238. And four drivers for U.S. Food Service in Manassas, Virginia, are joining Teamsters Local 355. We had two, uh, uh, two elections last week. 50 baristas at all five locations of Louisville, Kentucky's Sunergo's Coffee voted 30 to 14 to unionize with the National Conference of Firemen and Oilers. That's an interesting pick. Interesting uh, pick. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure fun. there's a backstory there. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know if anyone ever comes across that backstory. I would be interested in it. Ten electricians at Fort Hood, Texas deadlocked on joining the Machinist Union, which means uh, that they are not unionizing. In strike and bargaining updates, for Labor Notes, Courtney Smith and Jonah Furman wrote a big article about the ATU, uh, Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 689 strike against Keolis, a private operator of the Loudoun County, Virginia public transit system. It's the latest of many of these sorts of fights, especially in D.C., where private operators win a privatization contract on an impossibly low dollar bid and proceed to aggressively fight the unions where they exist to cut wages and benefits. In this case, the company even forced, essentially, a revote on the union, which Local 689 handily won. In Charlotte, North Carolina, 500 or so transit workers with SMART, Local 1715, at the Charlotte Area Transit System, run by another private operator, RATP Dev, authorized a strike last week, but apparently won't walk before February. In September, remember, members rejected a contract that would have taken away days off in exchange for an 11% raise. The Service Trades Council Union, which is comprised of six unions representing 42,000 uh, members at Disney World in Orlando, Orlando, Florida, recommended that their membership reject the latest contract offer from Disney, which includes a $1 raise. Oh, wow. How generous of them. The contract expired in October, and the unions have been rallying for a new deal since. The players of the U.S. Football League, headquartered in Birmingham, Alabama, have ratified their first union contract with the Steelworkers Union. Very excited for them. Hoping to try to get some of them on the show at some point. We've reached out to the union, and um, maybe we'll be able to get them on soon. The National Postal Mail Handlers Union, which is affiliated with LIUNA, incidentally, a new sponsor of the show, we'll be talking about that later, is mailing out ballots for its contract ratification vote. The International Association of Firefighters, Local 1012 in Coral Gables, Florida, are at an impasse in negotiations with the city. In politics and legislations, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the Glacier case that, at its worst, threatens to hit unions with extensive damages incurred by companies due to strike activity, and NBC, at least, thinks that our cloaked overlords are going to side with the company. 
Politico has the story of how some labor leaders, including from South Carolina and the president of the Georgia AFL-CIO, feel like Biden's move to push South Carolina to be the new uh, Iowa in the Democratic Party presidential primaries in 2024 is a major snub to labor, which is only uh, which only has a 1.7% membership in the state, which is the lowest in the country. Um, I would I would add that uh, my opinion is that it is a snub to labor, and and I commend those uh, leaders in South Carolina and Georgia for actually saying something. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. That said, uh, unions, especially trades unions and worker centers, celebrated a newly announced Department of Homeland Security policy that would extend protections to non-citizens who seek to enforce their rights under the National Labor Relations Act. Immigration status is one of the clearest vulnerabilities and em that employers exploit when their workers start demanding things like not having their wages stolen let alone their union rights, and can make it extremely hard to organize those workers who are, for obvious reasons, some of the most exploited workers in the country. We'll be talking about that later in the show as well. And finally, wrapping it up with internal union politics, the ballots have officially been mailed out in the UAW runoff elections for the three slots that were not decided in the first round. That is the president. The runoff is between incumbent Ray Curry and reform challenger Sean Fain. One of the three vice president, uh, presidents, which is between two incumbents, as the reformers only ran for two of the three slots, and the Region 9 director between incumbent Lauren Farrell and reform challenger Daniel Vicente. Fain and Curry held an online debate moderated by Stephen Greenhouse, uh, which took up some of the core and existential issues facing the union. So if you're interested, maybe check that out. So we're going to go ahead and head to our first break. On the other side, I'm really excited for this conversation. We're going to be talking to Dr. Larissa Petrucci about the effects of repealing prevailing wage laws. We'll be right back. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know about how viable clean and renewable energy is. To that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to more than thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state. We're working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about our work and how you can join us at energyalabama.org. 
Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Are you looking for a better future, a career that can have you set for life, and to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? If you are, then consider a skilled trades apprenticeship with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. The work of IUPAT is all around us, from the industrial painters who work on the bridges to drywall finishers, floor coverers, the glazers who install the glass in our skylines, and so much more. With an IUPAT apprenticeship, you earn while you learn and receive benefits while learning the trade, including a pension. We provide world-class education free of charge. That's right, no student debt. Our starting salaries for apprentices that graduate is above the national median salary with benefits for entire families. And you have the flexibility to take your trade wherever you'd like in the country to work. IUPAT District Council 77 covers our entire region, so give Adam Booth a call at 205-603-3142 for more information. Again, that phone number is 205-603-3142. Come build a better future with us today and join IUPAC. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. And you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. If you've got anything to add, feel free to give us a call or send us a text message. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. We're going to go right into our next segment uh, where we're going to be talking about prevailing wage. Um, And uh, prevailing wage, maybe that sounds a little bit too, you know, I don't know, boring or whatever, but the impacts are real, the impacts are important, and, uh, you know, I I think that uh, once you understand what it means, it's not really that boring, Um, because the, the gist of it is, do you want construction workers to make more money, and do you want them to be safe, or do you not? And that's... 
that's not boring. That's pretty relevant to not only construction workers, but also to, uh, you know, people in their community, people who maybe care somewhat about people other than themselves, right? And so here to talk to us about prevailing wage laws is Dr. Larissa Petrucci, a uh, PhD postdoctoral research associate, or formerly was that, at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She is currently now with the NorCal Construction Industry Compliance Organization. Uh, Dr. Larissa, thank you so much for taking your time uh, to talk to us today. Excited to have you. So the name of the study that you did for the Illinois Economic Policy Institute is titled The Economic Impact of Prevailing Wage Law Repeals on Construction Market Outcomes, Evidence from Repeals Between 2015 in 2018. You did this with uh, Frank Manzo IV, the executive director at Economic Policy Institute in Illinois, and Robert Bruno. Um, and so the the first thing, I guess, you know, and I, and I kind of, I did a little bit of a summary, but, but help us understand maybe a bit more clearly what prevailing wage is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much for kind of setting it up. And I know the title isn't the flashiest title, but the content I think is really relevant. I hope to all your listeners and beyond your listeners. Um, so yeah, let's talk about construction. So construction, first of all, massive industry that highly affects all of us, given that it's, you know, contributing to building the world around us that we uh, live in, that we, you know, have coffee and that we go to work in, that we drive on. So already I would say like, you know, just this hugely important sector. So construction has some unique components that are um, that kind of set it apart from other sectors or industries. So when we're talking about public works construction projects, we're talking about projects that are funded by the public through taxpayer dollars um, that governments decide to award to, you know, specific awarding bodies um, in order to build a project uh, that is going to benefit the taxpayers. So that is really at the heart of these public works projects is making sure that money paid for by taxpayers is being used um, appropriately on these public works projects. So the process for kind of making sure um, a contractor is, you know, going to be a good fit for the project is they have to, you know, fill out a bid packet where they say why they're a good fit for the job and, you know, what the job is going to cost. Well, the way it works in public works construction is that the lowest bidder pretty much automatically wins. So what does that mean? It means that the contractor has all of the incentive to lower the cost as much as possible. And one way that we know employers are always trying to lower the cost is to squeeze the worker. Um, so in order to kind of protect construction worker wages, the construction industry has this kind of unique minimum wage um, system called prevailing wage. Um, so what prevailing wage really does, it's just is a way to determine what is the most common or the prevailing wage in that local economy and say that, you know, if you're gonna have a public works project specifically that's paid for by taxpayers, let's make sure that all the contractors are paying that same wage so they can't come in and undercut wages. Um, so that's, you know, most broadly what prevailing wage is. Um, should I stop there? Do you want me to keep kind of going into a few more pieces? 
No, I think I think that's a really good uh, that's a really good setup, and and you know it, it's it, it's pretty intuitive. Prevailing wage, what it you know what is what does prevailing mean? What does wage mean? And so you know most people, if you think through it, you're going to kind of get the gist of what it is, and and basically the effect is that it has it 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 brings up the wage floor and and makes it more difficult for employers to pay below that, and and makes it easier for contractors who want to do right by their employees to bid on a project successfully, right? Because if I'm a, if I'm a contractor and I'm wanting to do right, I'm wanting to pay my workers well, that's going to cost a certain amount of money. And if somebody else, some fly-by-night contractors comes in and says, well, I'm going to pay my workers $8 an hour or whatever, uh, and, and then the government is forced to accept the lowest bidder, well, then maybe that undercuts my ability to uh, to bid and and pay workers well. And then also that's going to actually end up, you know, if you're paying construction workers $8 an hour, it's going to be difficult to retain those types of folks uh, that's in that type of industry. And so maybe they don't have the type of training. Maybe they're not able to do the job as safely. Maybe they're not able to do the job as uh, with as high a quality as you would get if you were able to pay somebody more. Walk us through some. Walk us through some of those implications and, and why we know that they're there. You know, specifically as it relates to quality and safety, uh, th those effects when it comes to prevailing wage laws. Sure. Yeah. So just to back up a, a bit and to kind of talk about you know the repeals. Um, we can kind of set up why we did this particular study. So you know, as we both have now kind of mentioned. Uh, you know, cutting worker wages is always seen as a strategy to, you know, save costs. Um, we all hopefully know that that is a very short term way of looking at costs. And I think this is what our study proves. So really what happened between 2015 and 2018, um, six states decided to repeal their state prevailing wage laws or to say, you know what, we're not going to mandate that contractors bidding on public works um, pay their workers this kind of, you know, wage that helps to stabilize these local markets. Um, those who were in favor of the repeal, governors and state legislators, kind of made a promise to taxpayers um, that cutting out these middle class wages um, and benefits to construction workers would save them money on construction projects. And sure, the logic seems you know, somewhat obvious enough. You don't pay workers as much. You don't have as much of your tax dollars um, being used. Uh, for these projects and perhaps you can have more projects. So we decided to test that and to kind of do um, one of the first studies to really look at all of the states that repealed these laws and compare them to the 28 states, including the District of Columbia, who has maintained their prevailing wage laws. So we wanted to see, okay, there's this promise that it's going to save money. What actually happened? Um, so, you know, kind of broadly what happened is there were negative impacts for the workers for the um, employers and for the community. So construction worker earnings and productivity fell behind states that maintained their prevailing wage laws, on-the-job fatalities increased, um, and reliance on government assistance programs increased, which essentially means you know, taxpayers are you know, now kind of shifting where their dollars are going instead of you know, right in the pockets of workers through the wages and kind of into these government assistance programs. Um, it slowed down employment growth and fewer projects were completed by local contractors. Um, so, you know, if we want to focus kind of first on the, the training element, 
one component of a state prevailing wage law it is that it requires contractors to contribute a small amount to a training fund um, to assist in apprenticeship training. Um, and in these like state sponsored apprenticeship programs, you really have a requirement to um, engage in very rigorous kind of training uh, to ensure safety on these jobs. You know, construction is one of the most unsafe jobs that one can have. So it's really important to have really strong safety standards that come from this apprenticeship um, training. So when you take away that kind of model for contributing to training, what you're doing is creating a you know, more unsafe environment as workers are not as well equipped to um, work in their environments you know, safely. Um, and kind of as you were saying, Jacob, you know, what actually ended up happening after 2018 into the pandemic is this, you know, massive labor shortage, this, you know, recognition by workers that we're not going to continue to work for employers who do not pay us a reasonable wage, who are making us work in unhealthy environments and do not offer us benefits. Um, so, you know, really without having this kind of way to attract workers, paying them again, just the local prevailing wage, uh, you really are kind of missing out on an opportunity to make use of these, you know, federal investment programs that are, you know, beginning now um, and really just kind of closing the pipeline of workers to to the jobs. And this is something that is, you know, it, it, it's relevant to our audience in, in, a, in a few kind of kind of roundabout ways. I mean, for one, I uh, mentioned this to mention this to you when we spoke on the phone uh, the other day is we just had a construction worker die and and actually there was a construction worker die a few weeks even before that but the one that most recently that I'm thinking of is is uh, Torobio Perez um, he died in a construction project off of Old Monrovia Road it wasn't a government project but it was we know for a fact a non-union contractor and that is one of the effects that you say of of that your study shows and that you say you know, th this study is consistent with other literature in this area, with other peer-reviewed literature in this area that shows these effect of repealing prevailing wage projects. And yet, you know, this literature has been out there. People have known this. And people are still pushing back against these protections for construction workers, whether it be attacking prevailing wage laws, whether it be attacking project labor agreements, as our governor did a few months ago uh, when she attacked uh, uh, Joe Biden's executive order mandating project labor agreements on federal construction over $35 million. And one of the things that, prevailing, or that project labor agreements includes is prevailing wage. And, you know, so, the, it, it, and, and like you said, it's not just relevant to um, to construction workers or to people through just the the you know human empathy like I care about other people because I'm a human and that's what humans do. But it's also the productivity decreased. Uh, the you know the number of projects that they were able to perform decreased. These are actually like directly even if we just don't care about people, these are not helping the people that these. Uh, repeals are supposed to help. They're supposed to help the taxpayer pay less and get more done. And that's just factually not, what, not what's happening. And you know what's so interesting, Jacob, is that in the construction industry, another kind of unique component is that labor costs actually make up less than a quarter of the total cost of a project um, because so much of the cost is determined by materials. 
So, you know, when you really have a, a law or a repeal of a law that's focused on shrinking the wages of the workers, that's really not going to be a very smart economic, uh, you know, program because it doesn't actually hit what is raising the cost in the construction industry. Um, and, you know, interestingly, actually, a, um, a Republican leader in the Indiana House of Representatives, uh, Ed Soliday, actually did admit that after they got rid of the prevailing wage law, it didn't save them a penny. That's exactly what he said. Mm. And, you know, I think what these repeals show us um, alongside, you know, other kinds of, of you know, ways to squeeze workers more by lack of benefits, lack of training, um, just general lack of investment in workers um, as, you know, as workers who can be both productive, safe, and paid an appropriate wage. It's just a short-term strategy. It's just this very, very um, short-sighted way to think about, okay, how do we save money and cut corners um, without any recognition of the long-term impacts of, you know, losing this pipeline of workers, having, um, you know, lower quality projects. You know, I'm in California right now, and I don't know if you all have seen on the news there that, you know, there are people who are rafting through San Francisco because of the, mm. you know, the the rain that's being ca caused as our, you know, climate continues to change. And I just think that it's, you know, very unwise to take shortcuts in the construction industry, as we know that climate is going to increasingly, you know, not be really aligned with the kinds of it, you know, built environment that we have right now. We're going to need hmm. new infrastructure that is going to, you know, make sure that we're all safe in this context. So I think it's very, very dangerous to target construction in particular um, to uh, cut corners. Right. And not only that Republican leader that you mentioned, uh, this uh, Jim Justice from West Virginia said the same thing a few years ago. I don't know if you remember that, but I just I just looked it up. It was from uh, 2021, and he said, quote, We passed the right-to-work law in West Virginia, and we ran to the windows looking to see all the people that were going to come, and they didn't come. We got rid of the prevailing wage. We changed our corporate taxes, and we've done a lot of different things, and we've run to the windows, and they haven't come. And that's the rub, right? That that screwing over workers, it doesn't even give what it promises, right? That you know, it doesn't even attract businesses in the way that people pretend it will. It's just bad for workers and bad for the community. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think too, you know, construction is such an amazing opportunity for um, for really especially young workers who are not sure what they want to do after they graduate high school, mm. for example, you know, this is an industry that you can get an apprenticeship training and earn while you learn one of the mm -hmm. only, you know, still uh, remaining, you know, training programs where it's not an unpaid internship um, where you're, you're actually going to get, you know, paid a, a reasonable wage while you, you know, learn on this job and you do it without debt. You know, you don't go to a four year college and accrue, accrue all this debt, um, you know, and who knows what even happens after that. So this is like this pipeline to, you know, these really strong, well-paying jobs that can really, you know, really support families. And you're, you know, by repealing this prevailing wage law, you're just completely getting rid of that pipeline. You're, you're taking something that is a career and trying to make right. it into this very short term, almost, you know, gig-like kind of job. It just completely mm -hmm. changes the nature of this occupation in a way that I think um, just, yeah, really, really does a disservice to, um, to workers. 
Absolutely. And one of the more, and I, I want to dig in really quickly to um, the t two of the more maybe ancillary things that people wouldn't immediately think of. You know, okay, so, so I'm going to repeal prevailing wage and workers' wages are going to go down. I think that seems pretty intuitive to people, but they hope that there's these other benefits. But one of the other things that you mentioned is fatalities increasing. Um, talk to us about Talk to us about that and, and how it is that this happens and, and what's the degree of fatalities increasing. Right, exactly. So thanks for asking that. Um, yeah, so the construction industry on the job fatality rate was 14% higher in states that pre uh, repealed their prevailing mm. wage um, compared to states that maintain them. So yeah, we were also, you know, to be honest, a bit surprised at how big of a finding that was. And I think it really, again, just speaks to the importance of this training that the apprenticeship programs um, really provide to workers. These programs require workers to go through OSHA training. And, you know, it really leads to, as we can see, safer outcomes. Now, you know, another thing that I will say isn't necessarily in the data, but uh, you know, a conclusion that one could logically come to is that if your you know overall framework for how you understand uh, you know workers in this industry is let's cut their wages, cut costs as much as possible. You're just not investing in a high quality process, a high quality mm -hmm. way of producing a good. It's an overall framework of let's do the cheapest thing possible and cut as many corners possible. So I would imagine that you know um, contractors who are in states that are not really focused on protecting workers, um, you know, are creating conditions where fatalities are more likely to happen. Right, right. And what about this that um, after prevailing wage repeals, <clears throat> public works projects were more likely to go to out-of-state contractors? Talk to us about that. How is it that that happens? Yeah, great question. Um, so, you know, really what happens, again, is that prevailing wages are a way to stabilize local markets. Um, but when you take that away, you really allow for contractors to kind of undercut these markets. Um, so if you have contractors in states where they don't want to have to pay, you know, whatever the wages they're required to pay, they'll go to states where it's cheaper, where they know that they can cut the corners um, and, you know, Pay, pay workers the lowest wage possible so that they can be the lowest bidder on the project and win the project. Um, so yeah, you see more out-of-state contractors coming in, undercutting these local markets, winning the projects. And then, you know, again, these are taxpayer um, projects taking the money that they earn and spending it in their own community. So, you know, not only are local contractors being kind of cut out of local projects built for their communities, um, there's also less spending in that local community. So that's, you know, another kind of way that this is not just a law that affects um, the workers of the industry, but all workers in all industries, because it really does mm -hmm. have a ripple effect. Yeah, and that's a, that's a good point that and and this this is a this leads to another question that I wanted to ask is that opponents of of things like prevailing wage and project labor agreements they say oh this unfairly advantages union contractors it means that only union contractors can bid on these projects and that's just not the case right No I mean the case is if you want to have a competitive market, you need to be able to pay competitive wages. And mm. if you're not able to pay what the competitive wage is, the prevailing wage, then you're not a competitive contractor. That's that's just how it works. 
Right, right. And and so, you know, that it, it's not it, it's just saying you've got to pay your workers this much. It's not saying that you they've got to be union or you have to be a signatory with the union. You know, you can do that or or not. You just have to pay your workers this much or you or for PLAs, you just have to agree to this and that and the other thing. But it doesn't say that your workers have to be, you know, that you have to become a union contractor to bid on these projects. And when you do that, when you bring up that wage that that, you know, like you mentioned, it, it, it doesn't just help construction workers because that changes that does change the labor market. You know, if I'm if I'm looking if I'm a worker and I'm not necessarily I haven't, you know, uh, uh, become in my mind a construction worker. I'm just entering the market and I'm saying, yeah, well, you know, I could go do this job for $17 an hour or I could become a construction worker. Well, if a construction worker pays more, then that is going to put other pressure on these other employers, right? And make them have to pay more to attract the new talent. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, to be honest, this isn't something that we talk about in our study, but as a person who has done a lot of schooling and is, you know, waiting to have to start paying on my student loans. I think it's really important to, you know, kind of shift this, um, this debt pipeline to jobs mm. and really focus on these programs that are going to be able to provide good paying jobs after the training um, and really kind of show a different model. And, you know, we're not going to go too into education and the education model here, but I think the logic is the same that, you know, investing in training does have positive outcomes for, productivity alongside, of course, the outcomes of, you know, having workers be highly skilled um, for the jobs that they're doing, especially jobs um, that include, you know, the, the houses we live in right. and the places mm -hmm. we work and the roads that we drive on. Yeah, seems like that's important. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just a couple more questions before we let you go. Uh, the, uh, this one is about kind of the structure of prevailing wage. And, and I guess it, it, it's, it's important enough to just to just set it out that there are, there's two different prevailing. There's a federal prevailing wage and there's also a state level prevailing wage. And so what we're talking about right now is the effects of the repeal of state level prevailing wage, which Alabama repealed our prevailing wage at the state level several years back. But uh, we still have a federal prevailing wage, which is set by the Federal Department of Labor based on, you know, the county area. Um, uh, and that, but that's only for purely federal contract or purely federal contracts. Uh, whereas, you know, so if it's joint funded with state and federal, federal doesn't count for prevailing wage, it's only federal. Uh, and then other states might have, you know, like if, if this other state had a state level prevailing wage, then presumably their state department of labor would determine it for each region. Is that right? Gotcha. Okay, good, good. Just wanted to make sure that, that I laid that out there. And, and yes, Alabama does not have a state level prevailing wage. Um, and the last thing that I wanted to ask you is, um, we had a few people in the, in the chat, uh, Sid, um, and Christine asked, are you running for office? Um, <laughs> how great it would be to vote for somebody like this. Um, you know, so uh, is are you like launching a, a campaign right now? <laughs> is, is that what's happening? That great, <laughs> great question. I'm not launching a campaign, but I do hope to continue contributing to kind of the data behind, um, you know, dispelling myths. I think it's a really fun job to get to say like, okay, here's a promise that you made for taxpayers and workers. Let's look at the data, see what's happening happened and, you know, test your promise. So I have a lot of fun dispelling myths. Awesome. 
I, I think it's great. I love the work. Uh, feel free to, you know, send me anything, uh, uh, anything else along the, along these lines that you have in the future, and we'd love to bring you back on. Thank Thanks you so much. much. I appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Larissa Petrucci, we appreciate your time and look forward to talking to you again. All right. Uh, let's talk about this uh, at, at the state level. Um, in the last omnibus bill, well, it's not really, it, it, well, it's kind of, in, it kind of uh, related to the state. But, you know, in the last omnibus bill, pregnant workers got some extra protection from the tyranny of their bosses uh, in the form of the Pump Act and the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. You can go back and check out our coverage on, on that on our YouTube channel. Both Alabama senators actually voted for both of those pieces of legislation, which is fascinating to me. Um, which also, I think, lets you know the uh, the mildness of right. these reforms right. and protections. Right, right. Um, but these protections, these protections for parents and pregnant workers, uh, they might have you thinking about what other benefits and protections do pregnant folks have in Alabama. And Sarah Swetlick has the answer for that in AL.com in an article titled, Alabama State Employees Do Not Get Paid Parental Leave Unlike Other States. Which explains, you know, like the title suggests, that working people in the state of Alabama, working people for the state of Alabama, like if you're a state government employee, you do not get paid parental leave. Despite Alabama ostensibly being a pro-life, pro-family state. Um, which, you know, really, again, this is just another one of those instances where it puts to the lie, uh, put, puts the lie to the idea that they care so much for children. That they, what happened? Not sure what happened. Oh, I think my, my mic just come unplugged for a bit, but I think I got it back. Uh, it puts the light of the idea that these people care for children, that they care for mothers, that they care for parents, you know, because they're, because they don't even do that. They don't even provide for their own employees to be able to take care of their children when they have children. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Uh it's one thing to say as a Republican, well, I'm not going to dictate what private businesses do with their employees. But if you are an elected official, you have direct right. influence on what happens with public sector employees, whether that be for the state of Alabama or for uh, public education employers within the state of Alabama or local governments. You absolutely could. You could make a difference there. Yes. And, and if you felt like it was important that babies be home with their mothers, that mothers be home with their babies, that, that... That mothers be forced to carry a pregnancy to term, then you should feel like it's important to give them the opportunity to take care of this other human that you forced them to have. Right, right. Absolutely. I mean, and the thing is, it's the right thing to do for any number of reasons, but if you're going to to constantly tell everyone that you're pro-family, that right. you believe in family values, well, here's something that is so clearly a pro-family move to uh, to have parental leave, so that new mothers, new fathers can be home with a new child, whether they adopt or or, or give birth to a child, whatever the situation may be, 
it is very clear the research is is like overwhelming how important that is mm-hmm. for yes. the development of the child for the development of the family itself um so much so that that you could argue it actually has an educational impact mm-hmm. as well and, and i think that's where a lot of times i get i get very upset about this issue and i believe educators um probably don't make enough noise about this when over 70% of public school teachers are female. Mm. Um, giving birth is is a pretty regular thing that, that happens among employees of public schools. I mean, just statistically, and the fact that there is no paid maternity leave, no paid parental leave for public school employees is just completely asinine. Right. And th- these are people who work for public education. The goal is supposed to be educate the public, educate children. And we know that this is the right thing to do for children. This is this is how to set them on the right path of development so that hopefully by the time you get them in pre-K or kindergarten, they're they're doing well. Right. right. And, and they're 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 ready to learn. They're ready to move forward. And so it has a, it has a ripple effect that goes beyond just the worker itself into the family, into the school, and in the, in the broader community. But um, it's, it's absolutely the right thing to do for working class people to have paid parental leave. It's, it's a shame that the state of Alabama does not do that for its employees, whether they work for the state or work in schools. Uh, and and I, I would love to see more organizing among public school employees. I, you know, I believe that that's one of the, the core issues that public school employees need to be organizing around. Uh, I've always felt that way, and I, I've talked about it for years, that we didn't talk about it enough. Mm. When over 70% of your employees, potentially, um, are dealing with this in a very direct manner. Uh, you know, I know my wife, for example, it took her a couple school years to recuperate her sick leave. Mm. After I mean, my daughter, <laughs> my daughter was two or three, I think, by the time my wife actually had sick leave again. Mm. And that is right. that's a very common experience. I mean, again, you're thinking just statistically, most of the teachers who are going to be giving birth are, are going to be earlier in their career. Right. Um, they may or may not even have tenure yet. They may or may not be vested in the retirement system yet, uh, but they certainly don't have a ton of sick leave built up. Right. right? So it's just. It's just a shame, uh, and I I believe that all workers deserve some form of paid parental leave. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and and just to add a add a bit more context before we uh, we wrap up this segment, I will say just so that it doesn't seem like we're we're you know beating up on Alabama too much. Uh, although we are you know we're an Alabama show, right? So what happens in Alabama matters uh, particularly to us. Uh, but the majority of states, and this this did surprise me that the majority of states do not have paid parental leave. Uh, for their state employees, right? which is surprising. You would think that would not be the case, but it is. That is the case. The majority of, of state employees, at least according to uh, Sarah Swetlick, do not have paid parental leave for their workers. But there are some interesting standouts, uh, and, and, and those are in particular Georgia and South Carolina, uh, who do guarantee paid parental leave for their state employees. So, you know. That's interesting. That, that is interesting. Right, and that it's states right here next to us that are doing this it's not just you know new york or california 
but one thing I would say, maybe a wrinkle to that statistic that most states do not have paid parental leave for state workers is that in many of those states, they have strong unions, bargaining, collective bargaining agreements that right. include parental leave provisions uh, within the contract. I would, uh, I would assume. I, I can't say, you know, to what extent could, yeah, that, that that makes up those states, but I would see. I would assume that in at least some of these states. Uh, there are union contracts that are addressing some of those leave provisions uh, without it being addressed yeah, in can, state can, law. Yeah, kind of like how. So that that's an that is definitely an interesting and, and relevant wrinkle to to consider. It's not you know it's not like Adam has or I have gone in and 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 done this, but but you know in in a similar way that whenever uh, the minimum wage conversation comes up. And conservatives point to like Denmark or Sweden and say these places don't have minimum wages, and it's like, yeah, but uh, <laughs> you know, the minimum wage isn't in you know the federal law, but every single worker in these countries is represented by a union, and the effective minimum wage is in fact twenty one, twenty two dollars an hour. Um, yeah. So, as a matter of fact, you're not going to work in that country for less than twenty one, twenty two dollars an hour, and so you know that's something to consider. Right. Yeah. There's. <laughs> different ways to accomplish the same means, um, right? Like the prevailing right. wage is a form of uh, minimum wage enforcement in a way, right? Yep. So I think that, yeah, it's, it's it'd be interesting to find out, you know, if we dug into those states that don't have paid parental leave provisions, how many of them have union contracts that address those, and then how many don't, such right. as Alabama, uh, where the public school employees or the state employees are just totally left out, you know, high and dry. Yeah. We're going to take our last break here. Um, we're going to come back and we're going to dive in a little bit more uh, into this new policy guidance from the Department of Homeland Security on immigrant worker protections, uh, which is really interesting, even if it doesn't go far enough. Before we head into the break, I want to uh, make sure to thank our newest sponsor. We're going to put them in the regular ad rotation. Uh, got to record the ad after this, uh, after the program, but want to go ahead and, and, and just do go ahead and do a live read before we head into this break. And the our newest sponsor is uh, the Laborers International Union of North America, local 366. They are a laborers union local here in Huntsville. Um, they are proudly recruiting North Alabama workers to work on construction and nuclear plant maintenance. So if you're interested in that, if you're interested in a construction job, nuclear plant maintenance job here in North Alabama, uh, contact Donna. Donna at their training center to start the process. Her phone number is 256 415 7452. Again, that phone number is 256 415 7452. No experience is needed. This isn't, we've had some conversation in the chat about how a lot of entry level jobs require three to five years of experience. Not the case with the laborers local 366. No experience is needed. Free training is offered. You do have to be able to pass a background check and a drug test. Um, local hiring that grows our community with good paying jobs that have benefits is our mission. Live better, work union, local 366. Feel the power. We'll be right back. Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. We have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, 
reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about our work advocating for customers and join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Iron Workers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. .org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. 
Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. Alabama's only union talk radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. If you've got anything to add, you can give us a call or send us a text. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. We got a text message... uh, I solicited some. I solicited on, uh, uh, comments on the placement of the last week in Southern Labor segment. We got a comment. Uh, uh, somebody sent us a text from a 952 area code saying, uh, "I watch from outside of Alabama. I usually catch it live. Sometimes after it airs, your Southern Labor segment is my favorite to the point I wish one existed in my region. So I look it up too. Uh, oh no, so I like it up top." I'm a DSA member, though. Be curious what other feedback you get. Uh, And I got a couple other comments in the chat saying that they liked it at the top as well. So we may keep it at the top. We'll see. Um, Christine Park, uh, or we got asked by Infinite Content in the chat, have you all ever considered going on the Trillbilly Workers Party podcast? They're based in Kentucky. That is correct. Uh, I have been on the Trillbilly Workers Party podcast. I went on a couple of years ago to promote the Strike Fest, uh, the coal miners' strike fundraising stream that we had. Happy to go on anytime. David uh, was on there with you as well, right? Mm, I think it was Lee. Lee oh, was that's on right. There with okay. Me. Lee was on there with me. Yep. Um, Christine Park said, I subbed to Means TV, took a minute because I was looking for Trillbilly's channel and there isn't one. Is there not a Trillbilly's channel? I, I think, uh, I know Trillbilly's has some stuff on Means TV, but I don't know if they have. Um, you know, a channel per se, but mm. uh, glad glad to see Means TV getting a shout out though. Uh, yes. Big fans. We of... are we are big fans of Means TV. Means Morning News is a part of my routine now. I really really dig that program. It, it's worth it to subscribe if for no other reason than Means Morning News, in my opinion. Absolutely. Uh, some good news for immigrants working in the United States. And uh, Jacob, before you share the good news, I did want to let you know that uh, our guest is in the Zoom. Oh, okay, cool. So we can go ahead and, and do that. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I we'll think so. Ahead. We'll go ahead and jump into that. Uh, Johnny Jones is treasurer of the American Federation of Government Employees Local 1040, uh, representing TSA folks in Texas, and the secretary treasurer of the of Council 100 of AFGE, which, which represents uh, all TSA workers in the country. Uh, Johnny, thanks for joining the program. Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate uh, the invitation. It's always nice to, to hear some fun, uh, great labor news from around the country. This is a very interesting show, and I'm uh, very honored to be uh, able to participate in it. Appreciate it. Glad to have you on. Um, yeah, so you know we have a we have a relationship set up with AFGE National, and and um, you know so uh, at least once a month, sometimes more than once a month, um, you know they'll they'll suggest a, a a guest for us, a guest segment, and so we can highlight the work that you know federal employees are doing across the country um, and uh, some of their wins. And y'all had a pretty big win with this omnibus bill, uh, particularly with your pay. Uh, talk to us about that. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, the omnibus bill, uh, had 
about $400 million to address pay and collective bargaining rights uh, for the TSA officers across the United States. It's a tremendous victory. I think when they when they fully appropriate it, it'll be a little bit over a 1.6 billion to uh, 1.4 billion, somewhere in that range. But it's a lot of money for the TSA workforce and to make sure the skies are protected with the uh, workforce that's uh, career minded. And this is a gigantic step in that um, in that way. So that way we can move this agency away from and what it had been in the past is. You know, I hate to say, you get a lot of people hired, a lot of people leave, go work somewhere else. But now it looks like we'll have a real career ladder for people to want to be like, okay, I got hired at TSA and I'm going to stay here for 20, 30 years. And that's always, you know, that's definitely uh, better for better for a workforce, for sure. And another one of the things that you got was expanded bargaining rights. Y'all did not previously have uh, the right to collective bargaining that, that many other federal employees have. Is that right? Yes, uh, we are going to have uh, administrative Title V rights uh, with minus FLRA rights. So uh, when we have an issue um, in, in regards to bargaining, most agencies will just uh, reach out to the FLRA to uh, address these issues, but it appears that we're going to have to arbitrate or just appeal to the administrator to get these things uh, corrected. But uh, for the most part, everything that we are going to have is under Title V, uh, Chapter 71. So that's great. And of course, we haven't started bargaining yet. We haven't seen what the agency's tone is going to be. But uh, preliminarily, it seems to be very positive. The administrator uh, seems to be uh, very eager to get these rights uh, in place and for us to start negotiating right away. Good deal. Good deal. And uh, one of the things that y'all are are hoping to tackle and, and that you've uh, in bargaining and, and that you've already seen some relief for is uh, the work-life balance uh, that y'all have at the TSA. Talk to us about that. Yeah, it's one of the most important things that has not been addressed as we worked at TSA. Um, I was talking about uh, the nursing mothers. We, we That's a very big win in the omnibus bill. Um, it's for the federal and all, you know, all workers, but uh, it's going to allow mothers to express milk without fear of retaliation. And they should be able to do it in a private space and they'll be able to get paid for it. Um, that's a big win. I mean, that is a it was a big bipartisan win to my knowledge. And that's that's great to see the Congress actually work together on something. that's a it's a nationwide issue it, it involves multiple different, you know, all spectrums of motherhood are now being helped in that. And also with the uh, collective bargaining that we're going to have at the TSA level. It should hopefully address some of the issues that we have. Like, number one, if you're a TSO and you've been mandated to work overtime, right now there's not a process in place. So hopefully when we start negotiating the next contract, that we'll have a process in place so that way officers will have a more predictable kind of life and schedule because currently it's just not that fair. And then if you have something that comes up last minute and say, hey, I need to take this day off, maybe we'll have something better in place than what we currently have where the agency controls uh, all the leave that's available for the officers. Of course, you get the bid on it based on seniority, but from time to time, something comes up, maybe we'll be able to work something out to help out the workers. Right. And um, so, uh, and and the the pay, just to, y'all, y'all were able to get a 30% raise in this, um, in, in this uh, omnibus bill and expanded bargaining rights. How is it that you think uh, that y'all were able to get those, um, to get those wins? Okay, grassroots mobilization, baby. That's exactly what it was. Uh, it all started uh, from the when we first got hired at TSA. Uh, 
And by 2005, uh, AFGE had started representing some of the workers. Uh, I joined with the union in 2007. And, you know, I was a member and then I became a, a more active, more an active member uh, later on after I finished school. But <clears throat> it, it's all about grassroots. And we started making progress. So I remember back in 2014 when Benny Thompson introduced our uh, our bill, we had 86 co-sponsors and we never got a Republican. But when we finally broke through the ice and was able to start getting some bipartisan support, we knew that we were getting close to having some kind of resolve on this pay issue because everybody understood there's a pay issue, but nobody would come up with a plan to actually say, okay, this is how we're going to fix it. So I do have to give some kudos to the administrator staff for at least putting together a pay plan that Congress can look at and then vote on. So that's a great, that was probably one of the biggest things to finally get it to the forefront where the White House, the secretary and the administrator were all on the same page along with all the activists in the union to make sure this happened for the workers. Johnny, treasurer of AFGE Local 1040, secretary treasurer for AFGE Council 100. Appreciate your time. Thanks for calling in. Hey, well, thank you for uh, having me, and I'm, I'd be more than happy to hop on anytime. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We've got a caller um, on the line as well. Uh, we can go ahead and bring them on the air. Um, well, give me give me just a sec here um, while we transition the Zoom over. Gotcha, gotcha. I want to make sure our settings are set up for our caller. I do appreciate y'all's patience. Remember, I am not a radio professional. Yeah. <laughs> though I'm sure you have not forgotten that. And yeah, so we have a caller from the 863 area code. 863 area code. What's your name? Uh, where are you calling from? Thanks, Thanks so much, Joe. brother. Appreciate and uh, um, congratulations on the new local win. Yeah, always, yeah. always nice to uh, organize a new shop. So that's great. Congrats. Uh, looks like uh, I think probably the radio heard the caller, but um, YouTube YouTube didn't hear it. We hear you with oh. no other voice. Uh, but that was that was Joey Leach calling from Tampa, Florida, um, letting us know that they just won a union election. Uh, Twenty more folks, and so he's going to a union election, uh, union election win party. So glad to hear that. Appreciate the call, Joey. Absolutely. So we've got some good news for immigrants working in the United States, uh, which is not that often, not that often that we hear good news for immigrants working in the U.S. Uh, and that is that the Department of Homeland Security last week announced, quote, new a new streamlined process for immigrant workers to obtain temporary protection from deportation and work authorization if they are involved in a labor dispute. The National Immigration Law Center put out a frequently asked questions document uh, about the new policy, which in part they outline who is eligible and how to apply. Uh, so if you're an immigrant and you reckon your employer is violating the law or your rights, uh, and if you or if you know anybody in this situation, then you know definitely listen to uh, listen to this, and we will um, and, and and try to find some legal counsel for sure. So who is eligible to apply for this new protection? Uh, immigrant workers who fall within the scope of a labor agency investigation where the labor agency has requested support for prosecutorial discretion from U.S. Uh, custom, 
USCIS, I forget what the acronym stands for. Uh, workers in that situation are eligible to request prosecutorial discretion under the new guidance. This inclusive standard is meant to address the broad chilling effect of immigration enforcement on labor standards investigations and includes workers who have not personally been the subject to been subject to direct threats of retaliation. While this guidance explicitly requires support from a labor agencies for for a, uh, from a labor labor agency for an individual's request for prosecutorial discretion, there may be instances where an individual is engaged in a labor dispute but has not filed a claim with a labor agency. Workers in this situation are encouraged to contact the National Immigration Law Center to strategize how best to articulate the government's labor law enforcement's interests in their case to the Department of Homeland Security. So basically, if you're an immigrant worker, you feel like the law's been the law's being violated, you feel like your rights are being violated, or you know somebody in this situation, or you, and you're an immigrant worker, you can apply for these protections. It's not guaranteed, but you can apply for it. So what are the steps for a worker to receive this benefit? Well, in a typical case, there will be five steps for a worker to receive this benefit. One, a worker becomes involved in a labor dispute that is reported to a labor agency. Two, the worker or her advocate submits a request to the labor agency for a letter supporting prosecutorial discretion, which is known as a statement of interest. Three, the labor agency agrees to support the request for prosecutorial discretion and sends a statement of interest to USCIS with a copy to the requester. Four, the worker or her advocate submits requests for deferred action or parole in place and work authorization to USCIS concurrently. And five, if DHS approves the request, the worker receives a letter granting deferred action or parole in place for a two-year period along with a work authorization card. So that's some good news. I mentioned up at the top that this doesn't go far enough, and of course that's always the case with things like these because the, 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 the thing that this is trying to attack is, they say, the broad chilling effect that that immigrant workers in particular, and this isn't just when people hear immigrant, they think a lot of times undocumented. They think illegal immigrants. But it's not just undocumented immigrants that face these issues, even documented immigrants. People who are here totally legally who did things, quote unquote, the right way, there is a huge chilling effect for those workers as well. Because a lot of the people who migrate, who immigrate legally, quote unquote, they are at the whim of their boss. Their immigration is totally tied to their employment. And so, let's just think through it, you know. If I'm an immigrant worker who's here legally, I've done things the right way, I've waited in line, blah, blah, blah. If I'm in this situation and I could be deported if I lose my job, what does that do to your willingness to report to report your employer what does that do to your willingness to report your employer for violating the law
for breaking the law, for violating your rights. Well, it decreases it, right? <laughs> and of course, that's obvious. It makes you less likely to challenge your boss. And so what this is meant to do, it's meant to, it's meant to kind of take away some of that power. Um, but it doesn't eliminate all those concerns uh, because even if their ultimate removal is deferred, if their relationship with their employer is terminated, this new guidance does not provide a pathway to permanent status, right? So if, you know, if this goes through and you're, you know, you're being protected, you're being protected, you know, f from during this time, well, what happens if at, at the end of it, your employer terminates you for a different reason, ostensibly? Or maybe your employer goes bankrupt for some reason, or they just, they stop operating. What happens then? You no longer have that relationship with your employer and you're still deported. And so there's still going to be this chilling effect, even if it is deferred to some extent. Um, because the new guidance does not provide a pathway to permanent status, even if it is found that, yes, in fact, yay, verily, you know, your boss did violate your rights. Your boss did break the law. Even if that's found, the victim in this case still does not have, it is not guaranteeing them a path to permanent status. And I'm not even talking about citizenship. I'm just talking about permanent status, that they're not going to be harassed for just existing in the country. So it's still going to create a chilling effect, obviously. The chilling effect is still going to remain to a certain extent, even if it is lessened. One of the most important things for immigrants in this situation, or if you know an immigrant in this situation, is to seek legal advice and weigh your options. So definitely, you know, um, wanted to get that out there because I think it's important. I think it's good. I think it's a step in the right direction, but I think we, could sh we should be doing more. We should be doing more um, to make immigrants place in this country less precarious because of course it doesn't just affect them in the same way that prevailing wage affects the labor market in totality in an area so does the exploitation of immigrants you know if if a if a boss is going to say you know well you know i could hire you or i could hire uh this quote unquote legal immigrant uh, and exploit them and, you know, break the law and they're not going to report me. Well, you know, that is going to, to a certain extent, affect the labor market. And so if they are, if they are less precarious, if these immigrants feel less precarious in their status, then, uh, you know, that's going to make their job conditions, their working conditions better. And, uh, it'll make everything better, right? It'll make your job better to, you know, in a, in a roundabout way. Right. And it's also, you know, <laughs> as with everything, it's the right thing to do, <laughs> right? It's the right thing to do to not you know, dangle the lives of immigrants over their heads. Adam, you said we have another caller. Um, so let's go ahead and um, let's go ahead and bring that other caller on. This time the caller is from a 414 area code. 414 area code. What is your name and where are you calling from? Hey, yeah, it's Michael Bailey. I've called you before. I'm calling from Madison, Alabama. Oh, I can hear myself talking to myself on the line, though. Oh no, Madison Bailey from Madison, Alabama. You yeah, Michael Bailey. Um, let me see if I can fix that. I don't know if I can, uh, but Michael Bailey from Madison, Alabama, calling in. How you doing? Hey, not too bad. Yeah. So I was 
I was a guest on your show to talk about an Alabama-based group that we started called Indoor Air Care Advocates, and we were just asking schools to apply reasonable diligence, putting well-established recommendations to use to keep teachers. teachers as well as potentially the Alabama Education Association that are looking into ventilation um, as a reason why there's so much sickness um, or the lack of ventilation, I should say. And apart from this, I'm looking to get in touch with them to let them know they should be demanding six to 12 air changes per hour or 30 CFM per person. I know that gets a little bit technical, but in the meantime, I'm taking my air care advocate hat off and just putting on my Michael Bailey hat. And I want to say that all your listeners should know that um, our bosses are using our sick time to fund their negligence against this new occupational hazard that is now ubiquitous. It's everywhere. I believe that I recall AFGE and or AFL-CIO, along with the National Nurses Union, testified really strongly during the OSHA rulemaking hearings um, that we needed to do something about this. And the lack of having done it means that people's sick time is being used and counted against. And in the meantime, they're not getting uh, that sick time, but they are getting sick because people have not done anything. So it's just a thing I want to bring attention to. Yes, and it's and, and Michael, I appreciate you you telling you, you you reminding me of that because there's I saw something about this about how much more sick time is being used now, and it's not just for COVID, but it's also you know people using the uh, how how uh, you know people using it for for any amount of time. There's like a there's like a huge amount of hours that. Yes, yeah, flu and RSV, but there's a huge amount of hours that people are using in sick time more than we were before COVID, and and so that's in, that's an interesting that's an interesting point that you know this is an occupational hazard that can be reduced, and and you're not even talking about right like the things that you know trigger people like oh you know wear mask wearing masks and stuff like this. You're just talking about increasing the air circulation and that that can decrease this occupational hazard and also you know presumably, right, increase productivity if we're going to have to use less sick time and also allow us to, to, to bank our sick time for, you know, more important things or, or you know, uh, it, it, you know other, other scenarios. Yeah, there's a lot of documentation that says that ventilation keeps people in the office, keeps them productive and increases profits. There's also the fact that Ontario Public Health in Canada foresaw this and they published information to the effect that COVID has a lot of established literature about uh, basically creating immune dysregulation and immune impairment. So they kind of were like, I'm not really sure how badly this will affect hospitals. And that was in July. And recently, our hospitals and their hospitals were crushed under the weight of RSV and flu. So I see no coincidence, only consequence. I think that we need to do something. So here's what I was referring to. Um, 7.8 million workers had an illness-related work absence in January of 2022. This is up from 3.7 million in January 2021. Wow. wow. Double. More than... Wow. That's crazy. 7.8... And this is, from, uh, this is from U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. 7.8 million workers had an illness-related work absence in January 2022. Uh, They missed work in January 2022 because they had an illness, injury, or medical problem or appointment up from 3.7 million in January 2021. There it is. Wow. 
And that's your wow. sick time. And then when your kids are sick, your teachers are saying, why is your kid sick so much? Why is your kid out of school? You got to get your kid back in school. So you got sick kids that are forced to go back into school. You got workers that don't have any more sick time because they had to use it all because they're not doing, they're not even meeting code with regard to ventilation, right. let alone the recommendations. So just something I think people should be aware of. Indoor air care advocates is for schools so, and just ventilation. But uh, overall, mm-hmm. I think all workers and workplaces should be concerned about fixing this. And how, how are y'all doing on your, on your campaign to get this done in the schools? We are broadening our reach and work to find parents in other states that are also working on legislation. We're finding legislation that's on So there are kind of a lot of different things. We're also sending CO2 monitors, which are these little... Sorry, I don't know what happened. It looks like our system has uh, crashed. I apologize for that. Is that OBS or Colin Cydia? Um, it looked like it was a it was an OBS problem, um, but yeah, Michael kept dropping in and out, and it was a uh, resetting. Okay, gotcha. Our, uh, audio inputs for some reason. So sorry about that, y'all. Uh, but I do really appreciate you calling in, Michael. Uh, I think there is a there's a workplace issue there. Absolutely, um, it's interesting that on Means Morning News just this week, they discussed Davos, the World Economic Forum, and the precautions that were taken there to protect these very wealthy, well-to-do, well-connected guests. Uh, And that included state-of-the-art ventilation systems. So, you know, it's interesting that the most well-connected people on the planet they are ensuring that they have these kinds of protections in in the spaces they're operating in. Right. Uh, it, it's not a lot to ask that our workplaces and our schools have similar safety. Um, and I'll just, maybe I shouldn't say this on the air, but I am going to say this on the air, that uh, I have actually contacted some schools myself with the opportunities to get free filtration systems through UAB. Uh, and I learned that through Michael Bailey uh, and, and the group that he is uh, organizing with. There's Schools can actually get some, some HEPA filters for free. And, um, yeah, I've been disappointed that that has not even gotten much traction among some of the schools I've contacted. You would think, hey, something that can help our staff, something that can help our students, and it's free, right? Like, if nothing else, take the, take take it. And do a press release on it, right? <laughs> and make yourself look good. If, if nothing else, right. uh, it's, yeah, it's frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so we're, I think we're still on the, you've been on, on your end. So yeah, we're going to have to, something's, something's being weird with our. As we, as we transition off FM, we may actually have to kind of, uh, reset some things so it there will probably be a little bit of a break as we go from our fm program to the online only overtime yeah and all of this and just as an fysa and i guess we should probably we're probably going to have to put this in the chat so that people can actually hear it but um um just so that you know you can listen to us on as a podcast and you'll be able to hear that uh with all of these all of these live errors fixed so 
with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up and go into overtime, see if we can't get some of these things fixed. So as we're heading out, uh, don't forget about the folks down in Brookwood with the UMWA. You can support the striking families at paypal.me slash UMWA Strike Pantry. Friends of the show Obed Edom have a new album. Check it out on Bandcamp. On uh, the the Citizens Coalition for Justice Reform will be holding an in-person and family-friendly meeting the third week of January. Uh, and that's actually been rescheduled to the 24th as an online meeting uh, in cooperation with Alabama Appleseed. Just gotcha. as an update there. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, Labor Notes is going to be in Chattanooga for an in-person Secrets of a Successful Organizer training on January 28th. Leave us a voicemail. Uh, send us money at tvlr.fm. We're going to head into overtime where we're going to be talking about Steven Crowder's slavery contract. All power to the workers. <laughs>